Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to sing to you and now to hear from your word. And we pray, Lord, as we enter uh, this new year and this new season of life and this new season of ministry, that you would continue to work in us as a people, that you would grow us toward increasing measures of faithfulness to you, that you would work in our families, that you would help us to raise our children in the fear and the knowledge of the Lord, that you would give us opportunity clearly to share our faith with other people this year and that we would exercise intentionality and and, and courage in doing so. Father, we pray for our church family that you would help us to grow in our worship and expressions of worship to you, that we would be able to worship you with a pure heart. And Lord, as we so often have an impure heart, we pray that you would forgive us of our sins and that we would continue to learn uh, what it means like to pursue faithfulness while simultaneously depending upon and relying upon the Lord Jesus Christ for all that he gives us. We need help in this and so many other things. Father, we pray for our mission partners today as they start a new year in their respective mission fields. We ask for great fruit of the harvest in the year ahead, that you would encourage them and give them great joy in serving you in the ministry. And that through the variety of ministries and churches that are popping up all around the world, that you would protect them, that you would empower them, that they would know a wonderful, unique sense of nearness to you. And the result would be the growing kingdom of God. Help us here today as we open your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. Romans chapter 7 verse 15 says... For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want. But I do the very thing that I hate. I wonder if you can relate to that statement. I think all of us probably can. Through different seasons of life or moments of life. And this morning as we explore that dynamic we explore one of the most elementary struggles of the Christian life. And it is one that we all have experienced and all in some way, shape, or form will continue to experience. We find it in the book of Romans chapter 7. And we pick up the series that we started this fall in Romans chapter 5 through 8. The series that we're calling Remade. Because during this section of Romans 5 through 8, we see how God remakes us through the relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. And today, as we pick up in chapter 7, we're in the middle of the Apostle Paul's discourse on the law and how it relates to the righteousness or condemnation of people. What is the purpose of the Old Testament law? And does it hold up to the accusation that the law is actually a bad thing, that it's actually evil, and that it leads us down the road to experience spiritual death? And so if you haven't yet, I've heard the pages turning. Please open your Bible with me to Romans chapter 7, verses 13 through 25. And let me remind you a little bit as you turn of what the first half of Romans 7 was all about. Romans 7, Paul begins to explain how the law functions to show us our sin. And we use the analogy a number of weeks ago of a highlighter. A highlighter functions not to draw attention to itself, but to a reality behind itself. And the law in, in some way functions in that way. 
And now, when people put their faith in Christ, they're no longer bound by the law. They're actually released from the law, and they're bound to live for Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so he finishes by defending the law that has served its purpose. And he does so in verse 12, saying this. He says, so the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And that's where we pick up in verse 13. So please follow with me. Paul writes, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good, So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging a war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells within my members. Wretched man that I am, Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Paul starts this section in verse 13, and he begins by pointing to the fact that the law not only shows us what sin is, but the law of God in the Old Testament shows really just how powerful sin is. He says in verse 13, sin producing death in me through what is good, what is good is the law, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. We can make a couple of simple observations. Sin produces death, physical death and spiritual death. In that sense, it is more powerful than any other entity save one. (laughs) Number two observation is that the law shows sin to be sin And thirdly, the commandments of the law show just how bad our sin really is. Think about it this way. If we turned out the lights in here and I asked you with the lights out, uh, what do you think of, of, uh, of Jason Crank's new haircut? And you'd say, I don't know, I can't see Jason Crank, the, the lights are out. 
And so we turn the lights on a little bit, and now I say, well, what do you think of Jason Crank's new haircut? And you say, oh, that's a, that's a pretty bad haircut. Good-looking guy, bad haircut. We turn the lights all the way up, and I say, well, hey, what do you think of Jason Crank's haircut? And I say, whoa, that is a really bad haircut. When you're walking around in the dark, you don't see how bad things really are. But when the lights are on, you begin to see. So the perfect law of God sheds light on how terrible sin really is. Sin that we tend to take naturally, very casually, but is devastating in its effect. Without it, we wander around. Without the law, we sort of wander around in the darkness in some form of relativism, trying to figure out what is right and what is wrong along the way and bearing the consequences of this sick and twisted trial and error dynamic. But the law, through the law, we see sin for what it really is. Sin shows its true colors, and they're absolutely horrific. And so we have at least two applications right off the bat. We can say, at the very least, sin is deeper and more pervasive and more powerful than we often realize or give it credit for. If we take sin casually in our lives, it leads to spiritual death. You need to know that. If you take sin casually in your life, it leads you down the path of spiritual death. It's more powerful than you give it credit for. But secondly, we see that the law of God is not able to save us, nor is following the law of God. God's law is holy. It reveals to us the character of God. It's good, but can't save you. Our weakness combined with the power of sin in the flesh make following the law not possible for us. And therefore, the law doesn't lead us to salvation. It is actually the good vehicle that highlights spiritual death. And that leads us then to our second point, or to Paul's second point. And that is what is happening within us in this life through our faith in Christ clashing with the sinful flesh that he's talking about. The powerful dynamic of sin. And so in verses 14 through 24, we see a description of a war. It's a war that happens within us. It's a war between two masters. Now, there have been centuries debate on Romans 7 about is Paul describing sort of his pre-conversion Jewish self here, or is he describing his life after he came to faith in Christ and the war that happens there. And we don't have time to go to all the details of that debate, but suffice it to say, both positions have merit. I believe that what Paul is describing here is the internal battle that we experience after we come to faith in Christ, but while we still live in this world, in this flesh that has a sinful dynamic to it. Two masters. <laughs> the master of sin and the master of Christ. And to understand this, we just need to back up a little bit. So let me summarize for you where we've been. Romans chapter 5, we saw a picture of two realms that Paul created. And we, we use it in this very simple graphic of the realm of our father, Adam, that we're born into, which is marked by sin. We inherit this sin, and therefore we inherit 
death, physical and spiritual death. And another realm, which is the realm of Christ. And when we put our faith in Christ, he justifies us, he declares us righteous. We live then in his realm, spiritually speaking, and eventually in eternity, physically speaking. And this is the realm that's marked by grace, it's marked by life, not by death, it's marked by righteousness. Romans chapter 6, we move ahead and we see, well, how do we get from one realm to the other? How does God exact this plan in the life of the Christian through faith? Well, he does it through our union with Christ. So when you put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, Jesus wonderfully and spiritually and mysteriously unites himself to you, never to let you go. And in this union with Christ, he bestows upon you all of the benefits of his righteousness. He takes from you all of the consequences, spiritual consequences, of your sin. They're imputed to us, those benefits of his righteousness. And we are dead to the old self in sin, but we're alive to God, it says in Romans chapter 6. And so now we're starting to see a picture of this dual-fold reality, though, right? The legal benefits of Jesus' righteousness are yours, God looks at you and your account is clear, righteous, you are declared. But the physical reality of transformation happens in a process over time. From the day that you put your faith in Jesus until the day you die or Jesus comes back. It's a process. And in this process we find the battle of Romans chapter 7. God's changing your desires. He's changing your life. He's changing your spiritual state of faithfulness. But it's a process. And in the process, right in the middle of it, is a war. (laughs) And so we see that Paul describes Romans chapter 7 in the present tense. Which is one of the reasons I think that he's talking about post-conversion. He's talking about the reality of himself as he understands life and Jesus and sin and the law right now. He's describing the overlap of living in these two realms. Physically speaking, you're still living in the realm of Adam. (laughs) You're still living in the world. You're still living in your flesh. Spiritually speaking, you're living in the realm of Christ. And in the middle of that overlap, we see the battle. I think he's describing the battle of being in the world but not of it. Of having salvation but not having it in its entirety just yet. Of living in the body of flesh but now being led by the spirit. It's a war that is happening and it's happening right here. And he talks about the incredible power of sin and the conflict with the mind that wants to follow God in a number of ways. So look with me at the text. We see verses 14 through 17 and verses 18 through 20 really parallel each other. It says the same thing, a little bit different way. And we see that our spiritual desires, what you want in your mind and what you really want in your inner being, do not always line up with how you act. This is not rocket science to you, but it's putting words to your reality. Verse 18, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. 
Verse 15, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Verse 19, for I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. So when you put your faith in Jesus, you want to follow God. You want to know his ways and you want to live by his ways. You want to be obedient. You want to be a good child of his. We long to show the appropriate response of gratitude to a grace and good and loving and merciful and forgiving father. We want to do what's right because he is our head and because we know the benefits and because we have this desire to worship the good God of the universe. But yet, inside of us, the battle rages because sin is so powerful. And it does so terribly and a sin does not let go easily and just when you think that you've pulled the weeds of sin in that corner of the little garden inside your heart you turn around but for a moment and those roots pop back up and another weed is present in its place and if you don't deal with it soon the weeds just continue to grow in that garden bigger and bigger and bigger and so on the one hand you think the Christian life is supposed to be victorious. I think of Romans chapter 6, verse 11, just the chapter before. Paul writes, So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8, just the chapter after this, in verse 2, The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. And we might think to ourselves, I thought that I was supposed to be done with this battle against sin. I put my faith in Jesus. This isn't supposed to be hard anymore. <laughs> but on the other hand, you see the commandment of Romans 6.12, just the chapter before. And the commandment is, do not let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passion." The commandment has an active responsibility to it. You don't do this. You fight against it. If it was easy, you wouldn't have to fight. Or Galatians chapter 5. Paul's writing to Christians, and he says this in verse 16. But I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And here we go. Listen to the parallel of this in Romans 7. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit... And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. There's a war going on in here. Flesh and spirit. Verse 19, I do not do the good I want. But the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Flesh and spirit. Now many of you know that um, I have, in a previous life, really enjoyed ocean fishing while we lived in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. And one of the things that you learn about fishing is that you need to think like the fish to catch a fish. 
Many fish engage in what you just call a predatory strike. It's a reaction to a food source that's in front of it. And so you see the bait, you want the bait, you eat the bait. Not particularly complicated. A striped bass never really reflects on his life and where his life is headed. The girl codfish never really turns to the boy codfish and says, I don't feel like you're as committed to our relationship as I am. I wonder if you just love me for my body. The fish are just a collection of appetites. A fish is a stomach and a mouth and a pair of eyes. And so the more you think about it, you're struck by the fact about how dumb fish really are. And yet how dumb we are that we can't catch them quite as easily as we might want. Hey, you say to the fish, swallow this. It's not the real thing. It's just a lure. You'll think it will feed you, but it won't. It'll trap you. If you were to look at closely fish, you would see the hook, but you're not going to look closely. You'd know once that you were hooked. It's just a matter of time before the enemy reels you in. Now you think over time fish would wise up, that they would notice the hook, that they would see the line. You'd think that fish would look around at all their fish friends who hit the lure and all of a sudden go flying off into space, never to return, and say, I don't think I want to do that. But they never really learn. Aren't you glad that we're smarter than that? Hey, this isn't the real thing. It's just a lure. You think it will feed you, but it won't. You see what happens to your friends who do this, so you should probably avoid it. Flesh and spirit. And it says that the law of God is spiritual. And verse 15 says, I am of the flesh. <laughs> Two opposite things. Verse 18 says that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Nothing good dwells in me that's in my flesh. How do I know? I know because it says in verse 18, I have a desire to do what's right, but I don't have the ability to do it. We call this the doctrine of total depravity. That every ounce of my being is depraved because of sin. Spurgeon once wrote that if you think that every room in your house is clean from sin, then you clearly haven't been in every room of the house. Living your life in the front room of the house that might look prettier than the rest doesn't actually make the rest of the house any less dirty. And so I wonder what it is for you. What are the things that you keep doing that you don't want to do? The good that you want to do that you don't, but the evil that you don't want to do that you do. The thing that you know in your mind is against God, but sin takes its charge in us and it keeps us going back. Maybe it's the angry outbursts to your spouse. You know that it's wrong but you just have a hard time controlling it. Or maybe it's that click on the mouse that leads you down the wrong path on the internet again, and you know where it's going to take you, but you do it anyway. Or maybe it's the overindulgence in food and drink. You know it's crossing the line, but you keep going. 
or the lustful thought that you used to fight, but you can't seem to escape from it, and so you embrace it willingly, or the self-serving disposition, that self-serving disposition that you know creates wedges in your relationship, but you can't seem to help yourself. You keep serving yourself when you should be serving others. The list goes on and on and on. And any of them are, again, outward symptoms to the powerful reality of something more significant. And that is you are not comprised, negatively speaking, of the sins that you commit, but there is a real part of your inheritance that is sin, and it's powerful. It's more powerful than you recognize. It leads to death. It's greater and greater and greater than it seems to be. Verse 20 says, now if I do not do, if, now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin that dwells in me. Do you feel the weight of that? I mean, even as I speak of it, this sort of pressure is starting to build up in my chest and the conviction of my own sin is resting heavy upon me. And so what is our natural response? If sin has taken its hold in my life, and there is even a sense that I can't control it because it's that strong, what should I do? Well, we could do one of two things. Number one, we could just give up. It's not my fault, it's sin's fault in me. And of course, this is the most dangerous position to be in. Because the Bible speaks regularly about us being accountable for our sins and those sins having penalty attached to them as a violation of God's holiness. And so giving up doesn't seem like that great of an option. So here's another option. Well, let's just try to do better. If sin has taken hold of me and I keep doing the things I don't want to do, I just need to try harder I need to do better. I need to try to be moral. I need to try to follow the law. And that is a good response. It's a better response than the first, but that leads us back to the whole problem of the text in the first place. And that is the law is not able to save us because you are incapable of following it. And so am I. And so Paul comes to the end, this crescendo of The passage, and he says in verse 21, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do what's right, evil lies close in hand, and for I delight in the law of the Lord in my inner being. But I see in my members another law that's waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Sin has trapped me, I can't let it rain, and I can't, learn, I can't turn to the law. Who is going to save me? Verse 25, praise be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is the only one who delivers us from sin when we seek forgiveness from him. Jesus is the only one who will one day make our salvation complete, delivering us from the body of death that we live in. 
and we will no longer have the tension of both realms. But furthermore, in the middle, while we live in the tension, Jesus is the one who continues to forgive us of our sins, even when now we struggle with sin, yet we enjoy a righteous standing, even when we do the things that we don't want to do, and our, and our mind says, I want to follow God, but I'm having such a hard time doing it. And so the answer is, yes, fight against sin. Yes, try to be moral. Yes, try to do better, but cling to Christ. I hope that when you find yourself doing the thing that you hate, your first reaction is not just to do better. Your first reaction is to turn to the one who has saved you, who is saving you, who will save you. Ask him to forgive you. Ask him to strengthen you. Ask him to help you resist temptation. Ask him to help you. And so we come to the great tension point of the gospel. For those of you who have been following Jesus for a long time, those of you who have been following Jesus for a couple of days, and it's a tension point that Martin Luther describes very clearly in his formula for the gospel. He expresses it this way. Simul justus et peccator. It's Latin, those of you dust off your Latin. Simul justus et peccator. That means, the word simul means, is the word that we get simultaneous from, or at the same time. Eustus means just or righteous. Et is not the past tense of eat, at least not in American English. It means and. Pecotter is sinner. Simultaneously righteous and a sinner. That is the state of the Christian in the world. Now, these things are not related to each other in the exact same sense, though. So you might say to yourself, from one perspective, the Christian is righteous, and from another perspective, the Christian is a sinner. Under the scope of God's scrutiny, by his perfect standard, we are all still sinners, But through faith in Jesus and by his imputed righteousness, that righteousness that is transferred from his account to yours, you stand before God just, justified, righteous. This is the very heart of the gospel. I will not stand before God someday based on my good deeds compared to the law. If I were to do so, this would be very distressing to me because of what Romans 7 actually says. As the text says, sin is so strong and it leads to death, it makes me do the things I don't want to do. I can't even understand my own actions sometimes because that's how strong sin is in me. But the power of the cross is greater than the power of sin. And the perfection of the Son points to a conquering of sin. And in the wonderful work of love that only Jesus does, when I'm backed into the corner and sin has its hooks in me and the war is waging in the inner parts of my heart and my soul as it works its way out into my body and it's raging, I realize that what I have is nothing more than a body of death in and of myself, but Jesus can do what the law fails to do. 
He redeems us from our sin. Jesus can do what the law fails to do. He can redeem us from our sin. And so I want to close this morning with this thought. And I was reminded of it this week by a good friend. C.S. Lewis says it very poignantly. He says that no man knows how bad he is until he has tried very hard to be good. I wonder if you've tried very hard to be good. Because the more you try, the more you realize that it's not possible for you. And he concludes in that chapter of mere Christianity with the exact same point that Paul is making in verse 24. He says that God has been waiting for the moment at which you discover there is no question. (laughs) There's no question of earning a passing mark in this exam or putting him in your debt. You will always be in in his debt because of the body of sin that you have. But thanks be to God because of the Lord Jesus Christ. He can do what the law cannot do. He can redeem you from your sin and restore you now and eternally into the realm of the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. Father, the weight of our sin rests heavy upon us. We all too well relate to the realities of Romans chapter 7, that we do the things that we don't want to do, and the things that we do, we don't do. That at times we don't understand our own actions, that in our mind we want to follow you, in our body we fail miserably, that our will is weak, even if our desire for you is strong, and that the power of sin within us is something that we cannot conquer of our own volition. And so we thank you for Jesus. I pray today for each person here, for those who have not yet put their faith in Christ, that in trying to do good before you, that they would see their need for the perfect Savior. For those of us who have put our faith in Christ, that as the battle rages within us, that we would lean on him ever more heavily and know and experience the sufficiency of his grace. Father, we praise you for your son, for he has done what I can't do, what we can't do, and what the law can't do.